I love this family. I love it. All right. We've got a little bit to cover today, so let's turn right now to uh, Exodus 32. When you journey through the Bible, you have to uh, go through some places that create tension, and we're not going to go around those places. We're going to dive right in them. And this is, again, one of those places, but hopefully the resolution that, that the Bible provides to this kind of tension will be communicated today in such a way that it will be life-changing, okay? Okay, uh, Exodus 32, let's stand for the reading of God's word. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods. Make us Elohim. Elohim can be plural, it can be singular. (laughs) I love that because God can be plural and singular. Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, interesting how they put that, not God but Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. So Aaron answered them, How dare you ask such a thing? Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had, handed him, and fashioned it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, This is Elohim, your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf, and he announced, Tomorrow there will be a feast to the Lord. So the next day the people rose up, sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings as well. And afterward they sat down, they reclined to eat and to drink, and then they got up to indulge in revelry, or as it literally reads, they rose up to play. And then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom whom you brought out out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it. They've sacrificed to it and said, this is the God Israel who brought you out of Egypt. And I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. And then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. And we'll continue to read, but this is our reading for now. You may be seated. Okay, um, let me hand out some texts here. Uh, Can someone take Hebrews 8, verse 5? Thank you. Can someone take... Psalm 106, verses 19 and 20. Thank you. Can someone take Genesis 26, verse 8? Thank you. Jeremiah 2, verse 5. Thank you, Greg. Hosea 13, 2 through 3. Thank you, Perry. I think that's good. Okay, just uh, a a little review here. Um, As we've been going through Exodus, uh, I hope we know now that God's goal is not just to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's bigger than that. It's to bring Israel to himself, to take Israel from slave to segulah, to make them his most prized possession, for them to be his bride. And of course, we see that God is a gentleman. He, he declares his intent to Israel in Exodus 6, verse 6. Then kind of like a knight in shining armor, he, he rescues her from Egypt. Then he leads her to Sinai, his palace, where he gets down on one knee and proposes to her. And then says, three days later, there's going to be a wedding. And then we saw that at the wedding, God removes the veil. In fact, they see God, they see God in all his glory. And not only do they see him, but God speaks to them. He, they hear his audible voice. 
And he speaks word. He speaks Torah. Torah is their wedding vows. And the people respond with, we do. And then the marriage is, is made. And the marriage is sealed in blood. And then what's next? Well, all covenants in that day also need to be written down. So the last verse of chapter 24 says that Moses goes up the mountain of God and enters the cloud for 40 days. And during this time, what does God do? Basically provides two things to Moses. The first is what? The the written covenant, the Torah. Written with what? Very finger. Here they are, Moses, in tablets of stone. Okay, what else does God provide? Look at Exodus 25, verse 9. God gives Moses a blueprint for what? The tabernacle. I mean, this is what married people do, right? They get married and then they make plans for their new home together. Now, we call it the tabernacle, but in Hebrew, does anybody know the word? It's the word mishkan. Mishkan, of course, is the noun, so we ask what is its root. And the root, of course, is a verb. It's shakan. Shekan means to dwell. So Mishkan simply means dwelling place. Psalmist says, how lovely is your Mishkan, O Lord, your dwelling place. Um, It's also where we get this other word, Shekinah, or Shekinah. Does anybody know what that means? (laughs) Did I miss something? What did I miss? Oh, thank you. There you go. This helps you a little bit, doesn't it? That's what that's Shekinah. It's that that the, the manifest presence of God. Sometimes our Bible translates it as glory, but it's 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 the glory of God. Now, Hebrews eight verse five. Who has that text? Because I find this to be one of the most amazing texts in the Bible about the Mishkan, the Tabernacle. Who has that? Can you stand and read that? Thank you. Okay, the pattern given to you, Moses, on the mountain. What's the, in the first sentence is what? It's a pattern. It's a copy of what? Of what is in heaven. And that's why Jews, during the time of Jesus, when they went to temple, they're thinking, we're not just going to this building, we're, we're going to heaven. Tabernacle, like Eden, is patterned after heaven. And and therefore, it teaches us about God. It teaches us who he is. It teaches us how we are to approach him. And that's something we're going to learn today, is that you can't just approach God any way you want. We can't just worship him according to our wants and desires, because he is a holy, holy, Holy God. And he prescribes specific ways that we are to approach him and worship him. I don't know if I should share my thoughts on this, but I'm going to. I just feel like a lot of the stuff in the worship industry today almost makes a mockery of the holiness of God. I mean, it's become incredibly narcissistic. I, me, I, me, I, me. Erotic. Um, I sound old right now, I know I do. Um, And there's been this one group that I particularly like and in fact, when I, when I jog a lot or, or go to my little sanctuary where it's outside, I, I, I listen to this worship a lot. And, um, but I can even sense the narcissism in it. Narcissism. When the person sings, walk with me. The creator of the world, walk with me. 
I, I, I think the person is too narcissistic to even realize how narcissistic that is. The creator of the universe, we don't say to him, walk with me. We say, can I walk with you? Can I follow you? Or I just stare into your eyes, the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen. Almost like she's talking about her boyfriend. And what does the Bible say about God's eyes? I mean, are they beautiful? The most beautiful eyes we've ever seen. Even John in Revelation 1 says, his eyes are like fire. And they almost killed me. I just, we have to be careful. He's holy. Now Moses uh, goes up the mountain. He's up there for 40 days and I think I know what the people are thinking. I don't know for sure, but I mean, this guy's an 80-year-old man and he's not coming back. And maybe like my dog did once when I was a little kid and it killed me. He just went away to die and they're probably thinking that about Moses. Maybe he just went away to die. I know, that's kind of not the best thought, is it? (laughs) But look at verse 1 then. So in light of this, they say, Aaron, would you make us a God who will do what? Walk before us. I mean, just like Yahweh. Yahweh is walking before them and and shepherding them, and we want a God like that, but not Yahweh. We want a different God. And then Aaron, astonishingly, responds in verse 2 by saying, okay, give me your gold. Wait a second, these people have gold? Why do they have gold? What happened when they left Egypt? Oh, they plundered them. The Egyptians, I don't know if they felt bad or whatever, but like, here's our gold, here's our silver, here's our, here's our trinkets, take it. Okay, so they have a lot of this stuff. So verse three, they bring this gold to Aaron and then Aaron does the unthinkable. Verse four, he fashions all of this gold into an image, a statue of a calf. Then he says, here's your God. Who has Psalm 106? They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They exchanged the glory of God for a bull that eats grass. Why a bull? It's a holy cow. That's where it comes from. That's exactly right. Well said. The cow's been holy going all the way back to ancient times. So don't say holy cow anymore. Here's the deal. In ancient Egypt and also in the uh, ancient Middle East, uh, the bull was the primary symbol of male virility and fertility. Um, But here's the question. Why does Aaron want only their gold not their silver. We know they got both. Bring me your gold. Here's why. He's going for something specific. He's going for a specific God. Does anyone know what God, know what God he's going for? Anyone know what Egyptian God is depicted as a golden bull, a golden calf? Well, it's the Egyptian God, Ra, which is actually the chief God in the Egyptian pantheon. Ra actually is the sun god, but how do you depict the sun? I mean, one of the ways the sun is depicted is as a golden calf. In fact, I could take you to a pyramid in Egypt where this is written on the pyramid. In fact, I I have a PowerPoint of it. Uh, Pepe comes to me. Pepe is a pharaoh. Um, And this speaking of his death, Pepe comes to me, O Ra, a calf of gold born of heaven. I've come to you, Ra, a calf of gold born in the sky, a fattened calf of gold. Ooh. Now, do you know how Ra was worshipped? Well, like all the fertility gods of that day. I mean, the, God, the, the, the golden calf is, was worshipped through this untamed and unbridled party, leading to erotic acts which eventually culminated in all-out orgy. 
That's how Ra was worshipped. And it's right in our text. Look at verse 6. In fact, the way that literally reads, and they ate and they drank, and they rose up to play. Even that word play. Okay, uh, does someone have Genesis 26 verse 8? Okay, and then he's like, Abimelech says, wow, I saw you caressing your wife, uh, not knowing that was your wife, because Abimelech was going to take her to be his wife. And he's like, I'm so sorry about that. That's that story. I don't know if you remember that story. Some of your Bibles just translate that word caressing as uh, laughing. Trust me, they were doing a lot more than laughing together. It's the same word. Let us rise up to play. there's, There's caressing going on. Uh, And also, look at verse 25. I don't know how your NIV puts this, but it says, Moses saw the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them run wild. Well, the Hebrew word, and if you have a KGV, it says, and Aaron saw that they were naked, and that Aaron let them run naked. The Hebrew word literally means to uncover. They are uncovering themselves. They're stripping their clothes off. Now, does anyone know what Ra means in Hebrew? Ra or Ra'ah? Evil. Of course, that fits. Uh, But look at uh, Exodus 32, verse 22. This is Aaron talking to Moses, and he says, Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people, one, you could say, are set on evil, or two, you could say their their hearts are just, you know how their hearts are set on raw. Okay, they've left Egypt, but Egypt hasn't left them. And as we've said, it's one thing for God to get Israel out of Egypt, but it's a whole other thing for God to get Egypt out of Israel. I'm going to tell you something. Egypt is powerful. And when you and I leave Egypt, I mean, think about when the people of God left Egypt. What happened next? Egypt, with its entire army, pursued them. Egypt will always pursue us. Always. It won't let us go. It lingered in their hearts. I mean, just think about this. Just days after this mountaintop experience with God, where they saw him, they heard him, they encountered him, They experienced him just days, just days after. They have backslidden completely into Egyptian paganism. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't take long, does it? It doesn't take that much to just completely backslide. I mean, we've all been there. Sometimes it's just a moment. That's why some of these children's songs are, are, are... are some of the greatest songs when, when, when you sing, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, be careful, little eyes. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you touch. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, and little hands, what you touch. And I'll tell you the scary thing about this whole thing. Think about what Aaron is, is, is telling them and, and, and doing in this process. I mean, he's not saying, hey, let's just, let's just be done with this, this Yahweh thing. I mean, that's all nonsense. And let's just go back to the, to the gods that we're most comfortable with and the gods that we've come to love. That, that's not what Aaron is saying because look at verse 5. He builds the calf and then he says, tomorrow we will feast to who? Yahweh. 
In other words, what he is doing is he's taking a God that they are most familiar with, a God many of them have already worshipped in Egypt, and he says, remember Ra? We were just mixed up. Ra is Yahweh. Or better yet, Yahweh is Ra. Do you see why we need revelation? Why we need God's word? How do you discern if you're worshiping Ra or you're discerning or you're worshiping Yahweh? And how do you know if 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 if, if Yahweh is Ra or 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 not Ra? But I think what's so scary is that they did get God's revelation. I mean, God has just spoken. He's just laid out who he is. He's just poured out his heart to them. He's shown them his likes, his dislikes. The first of which he says, you shall have no other gods before me because I am a jealous, jealous God. Which means God's love for his people. It's a jealous love. He says later, my name is jealous. How many times have we sing that about God? Jealousy, jealousy, worship is jealousy. I mean, we don't sing that, do we? But he is, he's jealous. I know, I can't sing. That was for you though, Pete. (laughs) His love is jealous. It's possessive. You know why? It's a marriage. Spousal love is always jealous. My love for Libby is jealous love. That's why I can say to her and she can say to me, there there will be no other lovers in this marriage. There's not even going to be pictures of other lovers in this marriage because we're both loving each other with spousal love. God says, you shall have no other gods before me, not even a graven image, no pictures. Have you ever thought about why God does say to why no images? What is the only thing on the face of the earth that bears God's image? Think about that. It's not a bull. It's not a snake. It's not the sun. It's not the moon. It's people. That's why in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when God's making the world, God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And when he says in our image, image there is the the word for shadow or reflection. That means we are made to be a perfect reflection of God. Which means right now the way we're made teaches us a lot about who God is. We're, we're, We're made in his image. And it also says not just um, let us make man in our image, but God also says according to our likeness. And likeness there is the word for statue. Humans are the little replicas or statues of God. Now all creation declares his glory in a poor force speech, but only humans are made like God and they're made like him because God has given him a special role in this world to reflect him to all creation. And this is why sin is such a horrible thing because what sin does is it shatters the reflection of God in us. But here's what God's doing with Israel is he is redeeming Israel to be little replicas of himself. He's restoring the image of God in them. It's God's new creation project. And he takes his new Adam Israel, places them in that land promised land and says, now reflect me to the world. And how are they doing so far? Kind of like the first Adam, huh? As Romans 1 puts it, they exchanged the glory of the eternal God for images images made to look like birds, animals, and reptiles. Of course, in this case, they've exchanged the glory of God for the image of a bull eating grass. I mean, just think about that. And then they label that bull Yahweh. And what we need to see today is that idolatry, yes, it makes a mockery of God, such a mockery of him, but it also makes a mockery of us, the joke's on us. 
Because if we're made in his image, and that's the image that we depict God, not only are we saying that about God, but we're saying we're nothing more than a bull. And that's going on in our culture today. And that's why I look at verse 9. Look at what God says about his people. He says, you stiff-necked people. That's a reference to the bull. Because this is what happens when we worship the bull. We become like the bull. Because we will always become just like the thing we worship. We always do. In fact, 2 S. Jeremiah 2 verse 5. You go after worthlessness and you will become worthless. Who has Hosea 13, 2 through 3? Become like mist, become like chaff, you'll become weightless. And here's the deal we, 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 if anyone's thinking, wow, thank goodness that we're not like taking our gold and silver and fashioning these things in little idols, guess what? We will be at church tonight. Our whole nation will be at church tonight. We will be sitting in front of a TV with something in our hand to drink, and we will be watching, and you will see a whole nation. Worshipping. We all worship something. Whatever it is that gets our affection, whatever it is that gets our best time, whatever it is that gets our most focused attention, whatever we derive our meaning or our sense of worth from, whatever becomes our glory, that is what we worship. And when we worship worthlessness, the Bible says we become worthless. When you go after nothing, in the end, you'll become nothing. We become what we worship. Listen to Paul in his letter to Romans. Didn't hand this one out, did I? You know what, I'm just going to make that a homework assignment today. Read Romans 1 today at your dinner devotions. Read it. Paul's saying the same thing. What, what we do, how we worship, and, and how we exchange the glory of God for, for all those things that we worship. And what does God do then? He, God says, okay, I, just, I, I, I give you over. You worship that, you're going to become that. Why is it that we do this? I mean, isn't God enough? I'll tell you why we do it. At least this is my opinion. I think it's simply because we want to be God. And we don't want to be the ones who are fashioned. We want to do the fashioning. We, we, we want to not be the one who's made in God, God's image, but we want to make God and craft God into our own image, according to our wants. And so that's what we do. We fashion him on our terms in accordance to our likes and our dislikes or according to our, our culture and its norms. And then we start saying things like, did God really say that? Or could God really mean that? Or we just disregard his word altogether. God just spoke his word to them, and his word is very specific on how they are to be worshipped. I mean, you have 15 chapters on the tabernacle alone. 
And see, what I think the Bible wants us to do is plug this chapter 32 right in the midst of God instructing them on the tabernacle and how he is to be worshipped so that we can see these two things side by side next to each other because we can see what contrasting styles of worship are are, are being expressed. One is man-centered, all about me and my likes, and the other is God-centered and all about him. I mean, just ask yourself, what is God communicating through the tabernacle? God's looking at Israel, they're living in tents, and says, God says, I want my tent. In fact, I don't want my tent on the outside of the camp, I want you to put it right in the center of the camp. And in essence, what God is saying to them is, I want to put my, my home, my Shekinah, my manifest presence, right among you, with you. So I can walk with you. And then God says, okay, but listen, the way you're going to worship me, it's not going to be through narcissism and eroticism the way everybody else worships. What, what, what the tabernacle teaches Israel is that they can't just approach God any flippant way they want. Because God says, I'm holy and you need to approach me with clean hands and a pure heart. And so Israel was taught by God to come day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, generation after generation with their lamb. Because God says, when you approach me, you need a priest and you need a sacrifice. I don't know how that affects you right now, but I, I feel tension in that because... Even in this now, we're we're feeling this problem that exists. You have a holy God who so badly wants to be close with his people and intimately one with them. Yet how do holiness and unholiness jive together? How does a holy, holy, holy God become one with an unholy people? The Bible wants us to feel that tension. And then you look at our story today, and our story today just screams out that problem and that tension even more. I mean, Israel's just so flawed. She can't do it. I mean, here she is in bed with another lover on her honeymoon. Look at verses 15 and 16. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant of the marriage in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. But go down to verse 19. When Moses approached the camp camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. We've probably all seen Charlton Heston do this, right? Um, and yeah, the text says he's, he, he's, he's, he's fuming mad. But listen, he's breaking the tablets not just because he's mad. He's looking at the covenant of marriage and he's saying, this thing's broken. Israel, you've been gross, grossly unfaithful. And so the shattering of the... Of, of, of the, of the commands is the, break, is the shattering of the vows. It's Moses saying, it's like this marriage now is, is done. It's broken. And here's what we know. I mean, God isn't the problem, is he? His word and his Torah are not the problem. It's clear Israel is the problem. And so now the question becomes, what is God going to do about this? How is he going to deal with this problem? Is he going to just cut Israel loose? And we know that he's not. Besides all the text that we've talked about, let me take you to a new one, Ezekiel 16. And I'll tell you what page that is on. That's on page 685. And you can read this today. It speaks about how Israel has played the whore in this relationship to God in light of everything that God has done for her. 
And so then at the end of Ezekiel 16, you're left with the question again, what is God going to do? And then starting with verse 59, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my covenant by breaking it. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. I, mean, I just feel like when I read that, I, f- I feel contradiction because in 59, God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you deserve. And this, of course, is the justice of God. And we see this over and over again throughout the story. God is a just God. He gives people what they deserve. But then you get to verse 60, but God says, yet I will remember the covenant. And this is the grace of God. And in these two verses, you, you have the narrative tension that's found throughout the Old Testament. In fact, we even see this tension in our story. Go back to Exodus 32, verse 26. Moses straps on a sword, has his, um, his own people do the same, and he brings judgment to those responsible. And how many are killed that day? 3,000. Because with God, the guilty will not go unpunished. He's a just God. But it's not just that. There's there's more to it than that. God is also faithful. And here's the deal. Moses knows that about God. I love his appeal, which begins in verse 13. He goes right to the place where he knows he can make his appeal. He says, remember your covenant. See, because Moses knows that God is a covenant-making God and that God is a covenant-keeping God, that he can't break a covenant. And he says, that covenant that you made with Abraham, remember God, when you walked between the pieces and you didn't do it just once, but you walked in our place so that if we failed, you promised to be gracious. I'll tell you, Moses understands exactly what Israel needs. Israel in this moment needs a priest. It needs a mediator, someone who's going to stand between the gap between Israel and God. And so what Moses does is he goes into priest mode and he pleads with God. He says, God, don't give up on this marriage. Don't give up on Israel. Look at verse 30. This is incredible to me. The next day Moses said to the people, "You've you've committed... Gadol hatah, great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps. I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps. And see, atonement is the way this tension between God's justice and his grace is resolved. This tension between God says, I will punish, the guilty will not go unpunished, and this tension between, yeah, I'll have compassion, I'll remember my covenant. And the same thing is found in Ezekiel 16, because God says, to end all of that, by saying in in, in verse 63, he says, I will one day make atonement for you. And this time, it's not a perhaps. And see, it's atonement that allows God to be both just and merciful because atonement is God taking what Israel deserves and placing it on someone else. And so when Moses says, perhaps I can make atonement for you, that I will take, perhaps, what you deserve and place it on someone else, who does Moses have in mind when he says that to the people? Himself. You guys, verse 32, I think, is maybe the most incredible prayer in the whole Bible. Moses goes up to God and he says, Please, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book. Of life. 
God, put all that, that gross sin, put the consequences of it on me. Exchange my life for their life. Let me, God, let me be damned in their place, please. That's Moses' request. And God, of course, rejects Moses' request, but he spares the people. And this is where we have to ask why. And it's because as great as Moses was, he still points to one greater, doesn't he? He points to the Christ, who also, just like with Abraham, said to Abraham, Abraham, it's not your little son that's going to be placed on the altar. And now to Moses, Moses, it's not your life. It's my life. Atonement is going to come through me. It's going to be my life for your life. It's going to be my perfect righteousness exchanged for your filthy sin. It's going to be all your ugliness exchanged for my purity and my glory. And see, the prophet spoke about about this atonement in Ezekiel 36 when, when the prophet says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, says the Lord, which has been profaned among the nations by you, Israel. However, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will wash you. And we know how God did that. We know how God made atonement. Through the cross of Christ, we are forgiven. He not only took our sin, paid it all in full. But hear this. He was damned. He was damned in our place. He went to hell for us. He lost heaven so we could get heaven. He lost the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we could have the Father? But now I'm going to say something that's almost going to sound heretical to the church. Ooh, now I have your attention. God wants to do so much more than forgive you. Do you know that? God wants a bride without stain, blemish, or defect. Who is holy as he is holy. And to make this happen, he needs to do more than forgive us. Because in Ezekiel 36, God says, he continues, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues so you will be careful to obey my Torah, your wedding vows. Let me put this in terms of the biblical feasts. We need more than Passover. We need Pentecost. Tell me, what does Passover celebrate? Celebrates being set free, right, from bondage in Egypt. And how is that done? Through the blood of a lamb. Tell me, what day did Jesus die? Passover. Is that coincidence? No, he is the Passover lamb. What happens then the Sunday following Passover? Most of you probably don't know this. Every Jew does it to this day. It's called the counting of the Omer. It's the Sunday following Passover. And there's this this countdown where they count the days. Reminds me of Bennett when we were in Israel. He put post-its on our wall. Uh, starting with 30, when we got 30 days from going home, every day, boom, there's number 30. Next day, there's number 29. He was counting the days, the sense of anticipation of coming home. God wanted them to do the same thing. He's like, I want you to count the days. Seven weeks in all, 50 days total. And then on that 50th day from the Sunday following Passover is what feast? Pentecost. 
That's right, it's Jews to this day still count the Omer, celebrate Pentecost even more than Christians do. Because what does Pentecost celebrate? This part of Exodus, Sinai, the marriage, Pentecost is their wedding anniversary. It's the giving of Torah. And see, the reason why Passover and Pentecost are linked together is because redemption is that whole package. It's not just God getting a people out of Egypt, but it's God taking that people to himself and being their God. So on that first Pentecost, what did God give? He gave Torah. And when God gave Torah, you tell me what happened. We just read about it today. 3,000 people were condemned to die. What happened on Pentecost 1,500 years later after Sinai in Acts 2? God comes down again. Fire, wind, the earth is quaking. This time, what did God give? The Holy Spirit. And instead of 3,000 people dying, what happened? 3,000 people came to new life in Jesus Christ. And see, I think Paul has all of this in mind in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he's talking about, I think, these two Pentecosts, which produce these two ministries. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, he says, He has made us people of the gospel, competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, because it came with glory, so that the Israelites could not steadily look even at the face of Moses because of its glory, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry from Moses that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry of the Spirit that brings righteousness? You see, not only do we need Passover, so many churches and Christians stop with Passover. We need Pentecost. We need an outpouring of His Spirit in our hearts. You know what Acts 2 simply means? Probably the most amazing thing that we have become the tabernacle of God. Right now, we are the Mishkan. We are the dwelling place of the Most High. It's, it's as Paul says, the Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I have one word of application for us today. Luke 11. Luke 11. The words of Jesus. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will knock. Find, knock and the door will be open. Because Jesus says, you know, you have fathers, right? And, and, and which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? How much more then will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to whoever asks? Ask him. Sometimes charismatics say to me, they do, they say this to me a lot. Why don't you guys focus more on on the Holy Spirit at your church? And honestly, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. Um, because what is, the, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit never says, look at me, worship me, adore me. The Holy Spirit shines the spotlight on Christ and says, look at him. Behold him. Do you see who he is? Do you see what he's done? And that's why Paul says in 
the next chapter after chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now, therefore, we've been given this ministry, the ministry of the Spirit, which is we don't distort the word of God, but we preach it, tr- preach it uh, truthfully, and we preach Christ. Because the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in his face. That's what the Spirit does. And I'll tell you what, what, what melts this heart of stone is when I'm ravished with Christ. And I'm ravished with what he's done for me. He died for me in my place. He went to hell for me. And the Holy Spirit speaks that to me every day and says, fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of your faith. This morning, I'm just going to allow for a response. We have the communion table. Maybe some of you just want to go there. Uh, we have the mikvah mikvah bowls and maybe this morning you just want to come and, 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 and pray that prayer Father I ask for your Holy Spirit if you wondered why I had drops of water all over it's because I do this I try to do this every single day I don't want to leave my house without asking God would you fill me with your spirit please pray with me God, we want to be a people, we want to be a church that is ravished with the beauty and glory of Christ. We want to be a church that looks like Christ, walks like Christ, that gives our life up like Christ, that can even priest as Christ priests, where we're willing to even lay down our lives and maybe even pray prayers like Moses on behalf of neighbors. And so God, we ask for your Holy Spirit. Come, make your home in us. Change us. Transform us into the image of your son, Jesus, we pray.